love the chance that I get now to come together and look at a passage of God's Word together with you. We're going to do what we do each week. We'll look at God's Word. We'll talk about what it means, why it matters, and what we should do about it. So if you have a Bible with you, Bible app, there's even a Bible in front of you under the seat. If you could turn to our passage today in Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 69. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when you found that, if you're able, if you could stand together for the reading of God's word. Matthew writes this. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him and said, You also were with Jesus of Galilee. But he denied it before them all. I don't, I don't know what you're talking about, he said. And he went out to the gateway where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it again with an oath, uh, kind of, may God strike me if I'm lying. I don't know the man. And after a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, surely you're one of them. Your accent gives you away. There was a way of speaking that Galileans spoke in that stood out to people in Jerusalem, like backcountry hicks or whatever. They'd be like, you sound like one of those guys. Come on, we know you're one of them. But then Peter began to call down curses and he swore to them, Peter, swearing a blue streak here and then finishing it up with, I don't know the man. Immediately, a rooster crowed, and then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside, and he wept bitterly. Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him and led him away and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. And when Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse and returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said. I have betrayed innocent blood. What is that to us? They said, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. And he went away. And hanged himself. That's God's word. You may be seated. I know, sad place to end. Sorry. <laughs> Let me pray for us quickly, and then we'll dive into this together. Spirit of God, we ask that you would illumine the preaching of your word. I pray that you would remove every distraction, every hindrance, everything that <clears throat> would block us from what it is you want to accomplish. Give us open ears and hearts and minds to receive Whatever that is, you tell us in your word. When you send out your word, it doesn't return void. It accomplishes the purpose for which you sent it. Oh, God, accomplish that purpose in each one of us today. And as I always ask now, eternal God, would you move and govern my tongue to speak your truth? Amen. Amen. I, Wesley, take you, Sarah. I must feel like you should come up here. Do you want to? Nope, okay. <laughs> to be my lawfully wedded wife. To have and to hold from this day forward. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and in health, till death do us part. It was 18 years ago. 18 years ago, August, got it right, that I first spoke those vows to Sarah. Um, and the thing about 
these vows, I'm, I'm promising everything. I'm promising my fidelity. I'm promising uh, my whole self to her. And the thing about vows is that more than just tradition, kind of like that's the script of what you say, more than just like saying nice things to each other on our wedding day, our vows are, are promises a husband and, my, and wife make to one another before God and witnesses that both dictate the agreed-upon parameters or boundaries of the relationship, and they also create our new identity as husband and wife from that day forward, right? That's the power of our promises, that they can even <clears throat> create an entirely new identity that didn't exist before. I wasn't a husband before, and now I am. And if you're any doubt that those promises, those vows have that kind of power, you only need to speak to anyone who's ever experienced the pain of those vows being broken to know and understand the power that those vows truly have to both create the safety in which a greater depth of trust and relationship can be built and create identity. And they know that, they know that particularly because they've experienced firsthand the way that those realities are, are damaged when vows are broken. And what does it mean when our identity is created by a vow and a promise, and then that promise is, is broken? Does that identity continue to exist? These are the questions we ask. Which, no, I mean, it's not to say that our circumstances in life don't change over time. They do. Um, it's not to say that we don't continue to grow and develop and evolve as people. We do, absolutely. But the point of vows is that they're the thing that is to remain a constant in the midst of those changes. That is, our vows are who or what we promise to be regardless of change. And I bring it up as we continue in our teaching series through Matthew. We're almost done, I promise you. We are almost finished, Matthew. I bring it up as we continue in this teaching series through Matthew entitled Kingdom Come because if you noticed in our passage here, there's, there, it actually has a lot to do with vows, promises, promises both kept and broken. So with Peter, right, you have a promise broken that, that should have been kept. With Judas, you have a promise kept that really should have been broken. And then throughout the whole passage, we see Jesus, the ultimate promise keeper, whose faithfulness offers the hope of reconciliation to every promise breaker and bad promise keeper, <clears throat> both then as well as today. But along with digging into all that a little more deeply this morning, I think an important question that actually arises naturally from our passage, particularly as it relates to the responses of Peter and Judas to their failure of Jesus, like the way they respond to it, I think the question that we see arising out of that is, okay, so I wonder how I respond. How, how, how do we respond when we're the ones who have broken our promises to Jesus? What do we do? I think that's a question that arises when we look at their responses. How do I respond? Because if you think about this, just kind of track this trajectory, right? Think about Peter and Judas had both encountered the very same Jesus, hadn't they? These are not different people. They both encountered the very same Jesus. They've spent roughly the same amount of time with him, heard all the same teaching, seen Jesus perform all the same miracles, and now they've both failed Jesus. They, they've been unfaithful in their relationship with Jesus, and they know they have. And yet, although the hope of reconciliation is offered to both of them, and I genuinely believe that, that at least potentially, reconciliation is offered to both, one of them, Peter, although, yes, devastated by what he's done, still senses that hope. 
and is drawn towards Jesus, whereas Judas, yeah, also devastated by what he's done, doesn't sense that hope at all and is driven further and further away from Jesus. And the question I think that we need to be able to answer, both for them as well as for us today, is, is why? Why so different? Again, they've both failed the exact same person. Why such dramatically different responses to failure? Now, sure, I suppose if you're a dyed-in-the-wool Calvinist, you might just say, well, those are the roles that they were predestined to. You know what? Judas, he's cast as the bad guy in the movie. He's living that out. Peter, the conflicted hero, they're just acting out their divinely ordained roles, and that's it. Maybe. But I wonder if it isn't a bit more complicated than that. I wonder if there's not more going on here. I wonder if with these stories of Peter and Judas told side by side like this, we don't have depicted the two responses we're most inclined to respond with ourselves whenever we're the ones who fail Jesus. I wonder if we're not seeing that too. Because this is the thing, right? Whatever the reason, whatever the context, we all break our promises to Jesus at some point. We do. And if you haven't yet, you will. And it's devastating every time it happens, or at least it should be. And yet the question is, okay, so when you fail him, how do you respond? Or how have you responded? Do you sense that hope for reconciliation despite your devastation and like Peter, move towards Jesus? Or like Judas, do you miss the hope for that hope of reconciliation entirely and find yourself moving further and further away from him? Think about your own experience for a moment this morning. Which one, which one is it for you that you feel most inclined to? Because that's what I want to explore together for just a few minutes this morning in our time in this passage. We're going to look at just two things together. We're going to talk about the problem with our promising and then the power of Jesus' promising. Just those two things. The problem with our promising the power of Jesus promising. So if you closed your Bible, Bible app, whatever you're using, could you open it again to this passage? Matthew 26, beginning at verse 69. Follow along with me as we dig into this together. Okay, let's look first of all at the problem with our promising. What is that? What's the problem with our promising? And if I could just state what I think the problem is first, and then we'll go back and kind of just talk about it for a few minutes together. I think the problem with our promising that you see highlighted in our passage today is twofold. First of all, we all, on the one hand, break good promises that we should keep. That's the first problem. And then on the other hand, we keep good promises that we should break. That's what I think, generally speaking, is the problem with our promising as men and women. So when it comes to like breaking promises, we keep like just big picture. If you look at something, for instance, like the divorce rate in Canada right now, which as I understand still sits somewhere around 40% of all marriages end in divorce. Now, I mean, I know there's lots of different factors that play into a stat like that. And the reality is that that stat is actually far lower uh, for people where both spouses are committed followers of Jesus. The fact remains, like, man, when you've got almost half of all the marriages in Canada ending in divorce, I, I think that means we've got a problem with our promising, doesn't it? Or, or that's not even to mention things like politics. Oh, I know I said the politics word. Elections, uh, these things where we see politicians making all kinds of promises. This is what I'm going to do, which may or may not end up happening. And or pointing out all the promises that their predecessor made that they didn't keep. 
Uh, we just see it on and on. So it's this like breaking of promises that we should keep, and we see it all around us. And when it comes to Peter and his promise, we see the results in our passage are no better. As if you remember, following the Last Supper earlier that night, Jesus had told all his disciples as they were heading up to the Mount of Olives, he says, you're all going to fall away. And Peter had promised that, listen, even if all these other guys fall away, I never will. To which Jesus had told him, bro, like, before the night is over, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. But Peter, right, he can't, he can't hear it. So, so passionate in his love for Jesus, incredulous that he could ever, ever deny Jesus. He, he doubles down on the promise. He's like, no, man, even if, even if I have to die with you, I would never, never disown you. Now, in fairness to Peter, as we read earlier in the chapter, he did, right? When the soldiers come to arrest Jesus in the garden, led by that mob uh, that Judas had brought in, he, he pulls out a sword and cuts off the ear of that one soldier, right? So he's, he's trying. Verse 58, if you look there, tells us he actually followed Jesus and the guards uh, all the way back into town and right into the courtyard of the high priest where Jesus is involved in this trial. Like he, He's following him right into there. So it's not as though his promises are just baseless. He, he, is, he is trying to stand up for Jesus. And yet still, still, as we just finished reading, Jesus' promise proved true. And before the night is over, Peter had indeed denied Jesus three times. Which, man, I don't know if you read this passage the same way, but I find it so hard to believe. Like, I, don't, I don't get how this happened. How? First of all, not, not only because at no time is Peter in any actual danger. Like, the, the, he's being accused of association with Jesus, but nobody's coming for him. There's nobody there, like, to arrest him. Like, the, the aggression is very clearly centered on Jesus and not him, Right? So he's just being associated with Jesus. He's not in any real danger. And then more than that, Jesus had already told him beforehand, this is what he's going to do. Like he had all the, the heads up in the world. I, I, I'd like to believe, really, that if someone came to me and said, Wes, before the night is out, you're going to drink too much, get behind the wheel of a car and kill someone. I'd like to believe that I would have like a laser focus after that, that A, I just, I wouldn't drink anything the rest of the night, and I would take an Uber everywhere I had to go just to be sure that's not going to happen. So why? Why, as verse 75 tells us, is it not until after Peter has denied Jesus three times that then he remembers the promise Jesus had made to him? Why? Well, the short answer is we don't know. I mean, the Bible doesn't tell us why. We don't know, although I like F.D. Bruner's suggestion that perhaps Peter had been expecting his loyalty to be tested by a mob, maybe standing before the Sanhedrin, some, some heroic setting, but never once imagined a trial of such trivial circumstances. Servant girl coming to him. He wasn't prepared for such a simple trial and got caught off guard. Maybe. Again, we don't know. But whatever the reason, as we see, Peter does. He breaks his promise to Jesus, and when he is struck by the reality of what he's done, he goes out into the night, weeps bitterly. I don't know how many of you can understand exactly how Peter's feeling in this moment. You've been in that place yourself. You've, whether it's Jesus, a spouse, a friend, you know you've broken a promise to someone, and you're just like overcome by the guilt and the weight of it. It just feels like a flood washing over you, threatening to wa wash you away entirely. Like, is this who I am? Is this my identity? 
the kind of person that would do this? But as I said earlier, not only do we break good promises we should keep, like we see Peter doing here, we also keep bad promises that we should break. We keep bad promises that we should break. Like Even if you haven't seen the movie, most of you have seen at least that clip from the movie The Town, where Ben Affleck uh, comes, walks into his buddy, and he says, I need your help. I can't tell you what it is. We can never talk about it after, and we're going to hurt some people. And his friend's response is simply, whose car are we taking? Um, that's not a good promise to keep, right? I know sometimes people set that up. That's like the test of true friendship. That's not a promise you should keep, right? Well, same thing here with Judas. Verse 14 and 15. He's, he's handing over the Son of God to the religious rulers. Like, that's a bad promise, right? That's, a, that's actually the very worst of promises. And yet, from making the promise to begin with, I'll help you find out where he is. To, to Jesus' telling remarks at the Last Supper, where he points out that he actually knows Judas's plan. To even that final kiss of betrayal in the garden, where Judas points to Jesus. This is the man, arrest him. I mean, the whole time, it's like Judas is in this like catatonic daze, just like Peter seemed to be. They're just moving along with, without seeing what's going on until it's too late, and they've already committed these actions. It's utterly heartbreaking, and yet, thinking about your own life, thinking about mine, can we really see Judas's keeping of a bad promise as something unique? How many of us couldn't confess to agreeing to something that we knew, like we knew we shouldn't, and then just ignoring checkpoint after checkpoint after checkpoint until we ultimately follow through with what could have and should have been prevented? I know I have. So it's not unique. We, we, we do both. But what I think is most telling and also most instructive of all for us from this passage is actually not in seeing Peter's and Judas's failure of Jesus. For as I said, uh, uh, I, whether it's breaking good promises or keeping bad ones, I think we can all see ourselves in at least one, if not both of those scenarios. No, I think what's most telling is in looking at how Peter and Judas respond to their failure of Jesus. I think that tells us a lot. That's where I want to sit for a minute. Because again, they both failed the exact same person, and yet their responses to failing Jesus are profoundly different, right? And the question we're trying to get to the bottom of is why? Why does one person's failure to Jesus lead to what the Apostle Paul calls godly sorrow that leads to repentance? And the others in utter despair that leads to even the destruction of his life. Why? I think the answer ultimately comes down to two things, experience and expectation. I think those are the two things, if I could summarize it, that, that lead to these two different responses. So just, just think about, let's compare for a minute. Let's think about Peter's experience of Jesus and Judas's experience of Jesus. Okay, Peter, what do we know about him? Well, what's plain about Peter is that he is outspoken to a fault, isn't he? The guy is just like, hilariously passionate in his uh, enthusiasm and, and all. He, he, he's a guy that also just can't seem to keep his mouth shut, uh, to which his, his fellow disciples seem to actually take advantage of a lot of times. Like if they have a question they want to bring to Jesus, they'll kind of bring it up around Peter because they know he'll say it to Jesus. So they don't have to look like the one who wasn't listening or didn't get it. They can be like, ah, oh, Peter, what do you think about that? And he'll be like, hey, Jesus, we should. And it's, it's great. It works out well for them. But as a result of this, Peter has 
also now let Jesus down in some very public ways, some big ways, right? From when he's rebuking Jesus, when Jesus says, uh, the guys, my, my journey is to be like handed over to the religious rulers. I'm going to be crucified. Peter's like, no, Jesus, that's not happening. That's not going to happen. Um, to, to refusing to have his feet washed like the other disciples. And you'll never wash my feet, Jesus. Even to this like well-intentioned but misguided stunt he'd pulled in the garden here. Cutting off the ear of this soldier trying to lead them in some kind of peasant revolt. Come on, guys, follow me. Like, he's let Jesus down in, 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 and failed him in all these kinds of different ways. But then think about that. In each of those failures, Peter's experience of Jesus was what? Yes, there was uh, rebuke and correction at times. But in each of those situations, what he also experienced was restoration. Their relationship was restored after that, right? Okay, how about Judas? What, what about Judas's experience of Jesus? What do we know about him? Not much, actually. We don't, we don't know much at all. Why? Why don't we know? Um, because the gospel writers didn't want to write about Judas. We don't want to spend a lot of ink on this guy. Look what he did. Maybe. But I wonder if it wasn't simply because Judas never once risked anything, either with or for Jesus, and as a result, had no opportunity to experience restoration from Jesus. I wonder if it's that. Like if... if, if Judas was like the Aaron Burr of the disciples. You just kind of, I'm always keeping things here. Am I on this side, on that side? You don't know. And, and as a result, just never risked anything. I remember I had a choir director growing up who would always say to us, listen, in our rehearsal, if you're going to fail, I need you to fail big. All right? Fail loudly, please. Because otherwise, we're still going to hear that the song doesn't sound right, but we won't know where the problem is. We won't know how to fix it. So if you're going to fail, please, fail loudly. Sometimes if you watch choirs practice, they don't stop the song. Someone will just do this. They'll put up their hand and be like, I know it's me. Um, and then you just keep going because they know, okay, they're going to work on that. Good. Fail loudly, they would say. I think the exact same principle is actually being played out here as well. In all of his passionate exuberance, what? Think about Peter. He, he swings big, right? He swings big. And as a result, he both succeeds big and also fails big. And in the face of his failures, his experience of Jesus time and time again, in the midst of those failures is restoration. Whereas Judas, having missed the experience of Jesus' restoration because he dared not risk try anything and failing, had no other expectation of Jesus in the midst of his failures as a result of his experience, than what he figured he or anyone else would respond to failure like this, right? Peter has lots of experience of Jesus' restoration, so he can expect, even in the midst of his denying Jesus, I, I, I believe he will restore me. Judas has no expectation of this. So all he's got is, man, if I failed like someone like that, what would I do? And so his expectation of Jesus is judgment, is rejection. In fact, it's interesting. I think Judas's interaction with the religious rulers when he comes to realize the gravity of what he's done, feels remorse, tries to return the pieces of silver, only confirms that expectation. As even those who sought to kill Jesus won't accept his restitution. Just think about how devastating that must have been. When even, when even the bad guys won't offer Judas mercy and restoration, 
what hope does he have of receiving it from the truly innocent one that he just betrayed? So in the end, when it comes to you and me, I think you'd agree our problem of promising is no better today, 2,000 years later, than it was for Peter and Judas then, right? Whether it's breaking promises we should keep, keeping bad promises we should break, we're just, we're just bad at it. We're bad at it. And as a result, we're constantly both violating the agreed-upon standards of our relationship with God and threatening our identity as sons and daughters of God. What does it mean when I willingly, knowingly break what are my promises to him? What does that mean for my identity with him? We're constantly threatening that. And yet the real issue that we need to figure out, as we've seen from our passage, is not kind of like, will you ever fail Jesus? Okay, we've already established that. You will, or you have already, and so have I. The real issue is, when I fail Jesus, how do I respond to him? What's my response in the midst of that failure? Do I respond like Peter, rightly sorrowful for my failure, yet still remaining that hope of restoration? Or do I respond like Judas? Where, I mean, listen, maybe, hopefully, your response isn't like taking your own life, but, but, but do I have no expectation of restoration and therefore give in to despair and a further abandonment of my identity in Christ? Which is my response when I know that I've failed Jesus? And I think in the end, the response to failure that you find yourself choosing most often or that you know you do use most often comes down to those same two things, experience and expectation. Our experience and our expectation. Because if you're someone who knows on the whole that you respond to failure to keep your promises to Jesus like Peter, sorrowful but godly sorrow that leads to repentance, I'm not really, I'm not really worried about that person. I'm not worried about them because you're bringing your promise breaking to our promise-keeping God whose promise to us is even if we are faithless, he remains faithful for he cannot deny himself. I'm not as worried about that person. It's those who go to despair. Those who go to increasing abandonment of identity in the midst of their failure that I'm most worried about. Because there, what's almost invariably lacking, you see it time and time again, is the experience of Jesus' restoration in your life. You don't have the experience of it, and therefore you don't have an expectation of it. And so if that's you, if you know that your response to failure to keep your promises to Jesus most often results in despair, results in further crossing of boundaries, and even greater abandonment of your identity, what I want to suggest to you is that if you're interested in changing that, if, if, if that's not the trajectory you want, what I'd invite you to consider is pursuing the experience of restoration from Jesus more intentionally. Consider pursuing that experience of it more intentionally, which I don't know, I guess it's unfortunately, sorry, but it involves willingness to move out of the safe, comfortable place that you're in right now in your relationship with Jesus and risk more. Risk more to swing bigger. That's actually what it involves, how we experience restoration. Because when you do that and then fail from time to time, which you will because you're stepping outside of what you feel like you can accomplish in your own strength, then you have those opportunities to experience restoration from Jesus as well. 
It's in the midst of those failures that we come to see that we have a God who embraces failures and welcomes and restores them back. Which, believe me, I know, it sounds way scarier. <laughs> it sounds far messier than most of our current experience of a relationship with Jesus. And yet, as the Apostle John tells us, 1 John, if we claim to be without sin, that is, if we claim to be promise keepers when we're actually promise breakers, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Deceive ourselves, not God. He's not deceived, but we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, if we acknowledge our sins, if we acknowledge our promise-breaking, He is faithful and just and will forgive us all our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the promise of our God, of our promise-keeping God. That's what I mean when I say the offer of restoration. It's available for everyone, but if your experience of that is limited and lacking as a result of your unwillingness to risk anything, the antidote, somewhat counterintuitively, is actually in risking more, not less. Being willing to fail loudly, as my choir director once told us. For in failing loudly, as we see someone like Peter doing all over the place, what you find is your experience of restoration is then increased, not diminished. And therefore, as a result, your expectation of restoration will increase as well. That's how we make the switch. We need to experience his restoration more so we can have an expectation of it. Okay, so that's the problem with our promising. Last thing I want to look at together with you is the power of Jesus promising. The power of Jesus promising. And we need to look at this because the reality is that that restoration freely available to all of us, is not the result of Jesus being a really nice, generous guy. It's not the result of that, but the result of Jesus' own promise-keeping. That's how he can freely restore us. For the message of the Bible, if you didn't know, is that although God created the world good, and everything in it good, including us, perfect, free from sin, as a result of our willful choice to break our promise to God, Sin entered into God's good creation, poisoned everything, including our relationship with him, so that now God, because of our sin sickness, could no longer be in relationship with us because of his holiness, because of his sinless perfection. That relationship was broken. And yet, even in the midst of our breaking our promises to God, God made a promise to us that he would one day send a rescuer, this seed of a woman who would destroy Satan and undo all the way that sin damaged God's good creation, including our broken relationship with God. He'd, he'd fix all that. He made a promise. In Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews alludes to Jesus' promise to the Father to be that rescuer, writing this, Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased, then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. And the celebration of Advent, which we're about to celebrate in a few weeks' time, is actually a celebration of the fact of Jesus keeping that promise to come and be that rescuer. Not counting equality with God, something to be grasped, as the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2, but emptying himself, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. 
which is what I mean when I say that the restoration freely available to all of us in Jesus isn't a result of him being a nice guy, but as a result of his promise keeping. As the restoration freely available to you and to me wasn't free for Jesus. It cost him everything. It cost him his very life in order to be able to offer that restoration. He laid down his perfectly obedient, promise-keeping life as payment in full for every one of our broken promises from the beginning of time all the way until its end. Which is something, hear me, essential. We need to know that truth, that he, his promise-keeping has paid for our promise-breaking for all time. We need to know that. That's actually essential. If you're ever going to heed Jesus' call to risk more greatly, to swing bigger in your relationship with him in order that you might gain that experience of restoration from him. Because the problem for many of us, the thing that, keeps that, 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 that holds us back, that keeps us playing it safe, is that we feel like, what? I can't afford. I can't afford the price of my failure. It's too much. So that's why we don't risk. We feel like that's, I could never afford the price of that. We know that our broken promises violate agreed upon boundaries and threaten our identity. And so we reason, if I just make sure not to risk promising God anything big, then I don't have to worry about owing a debt that I can't pay. So I'm just going to play it super safe. We're just going to make sure that we just stay at a steady pace, don't make any sudden moves, and I'll be good. But don't you see the problem, like the even greater problem in doing that? That's like a batter in baseball, literally just deciding, I'm going to bunt every time I'm at bat. Or a golfer just saying, I'm only going to use the putter in my bag. That's the only club I'm going to use. I mean, you'll, you'll, you'll definitely hit the ball every time. Almost every time, you're going to be sure to hit the ball. But you're only going to experience a fraction of the fullness of all that that game was meant to be in playing it, not to mention the fact you'll miss the, the thrills of like hitting that ball over the fence, driving that ball 300 yards right down the center of the fairway. You'll never experience that with those by, by deciding to just play it safe the whole time. And I think the exact same thing is true in your relationship with Jesus. Many of us are experiencing only a fraction of all that we were meant to enjoy and experience in our new life with him. Almost entirely owing. Yes, there's things like Satan and sin and temptation, all those things. But owing, actually, almost entirely to our unwillingness to risk sailing out beyond the safety of the shore and experiencing the wind and the waves that, yes, are out there in open ocean. We're just not willing to risk anything. What we forget about Jesus' promise-keeping in doing that, and this is actually... The other reason that that kind of risk-averse strategy of faith in Jesus is always going to keep us from experiencing restoration is that his once and for all sacrifice paid the penalty for all of our promise-breaking in full. It's already been paid. So that while, no, we don't presume upon his restoration, right? we don't sin that grace may abound like Paul critiques in Romans 6, we can know, we can, in a very real sense, risk without fear of failure. Because I can rest in the hope that whatever debt might be incurred, should I fail, has already been paid in full through the powerful promise-keeping sacrifice of Jesus on my behalf. And you see that the freedom that gives you to just risk and try? Because you know the debt's already been paid. That, that's the true power 
of Jesus' promise-keeping and what he accomplished for us. Because the truth remains, our problem with promise-keeping <laughs> remains still to this day, too. It wasn't just Peter and Judas in their day. Today, we have the same problem. Breaking promises we should keep, keeping bad promises we should break. And yet, for all of his passionate and, yes, at times misguided exuberance, I think Peter understood something about the power of Jesus promising. Or at least he sensed it and tested it more and more and learned to trust in it more and more over time with his experience. So that, as a result, Peter, he, he operated in a freedom to fail that Judas could never understand or imagine in his safe risk aversion connection to Jesus. And it's something, it's something that he understood that I think we need to either learn for the first time or, or recover an understanding of ourselves. Because do you see it now? The antidote to the problem with our promising is not in never making promises again. It's definitely not never in failing. I mean, good luck with that. But learning to operate more and more with the understanding that, that when we fail, when I fail, I can rely on the faithfulness of our true and better promise keeper, Jesus Christ, who, who credits, he takes all of his perfect promise-keeping obedience and credits it to me, thereby securing my identity as his bride for all time. God help us to gain that understanding or regain it and hold tightly to it in the midst of the failures that will inevitably come throughout our lives. Amen.